On this edition of the program, Doug Burgum, Tim Scott, the two candidates that might get the least amount of stage time in the upcoming Republican debate, they get their breakdown. Oh, yeah. It's debate prep for both of those guys. That's what the show is. You better get into it because it's actually pretty good. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. is the politics 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 program for friday august 18th 2023 your old pal justin robert young joining you here obviously the trump news on wednesday pushed all this back and so we are going to jam both of our debate prep sessions into one big fat hairy episode and i gotta say with both of these i found something There was a little tidbit. There was something that I'm going to keep my eye on when we watch that debate together next week. And it is next week. So you better get ready because things are about to get heavy. I just settled on my lawsuits. F you, Debbie. Let's play the stinger. You always know what your opponent's got to say because they've already told you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready? It is 2014 in South Carolina. Jim DeMint left his Senate seat and Tim Scott was named to the Senate as a placeholder by Nikki Haley, somebody that we did a debate prep on a couple weeks ago. However, he still had to run for a full term, and that is where this debate takes place. His main rival was Joyce Dickerson. There was another woman on stage who was running with the American Party. Let's get into Tim Scott's opening statement. Thank you to ETV for hosting tonight's debate. I am grateful to the people of South Carolina who have afforded me the opportunity to serve them from county council to the state house, Congress, and now the United States Senate. It is one of the greatest honors of my life. I am here tonight because life has not always been easy, but I've learned some important lessons, met some remarkable people, and have benefited from the strength and the blessings of the great state of South Carolina. Our nation faces many challenges today, but I prefer to see them as opportunities because I believe the best is yet to come. My commitment to you is simple. Every single day, I will work very hard to afford all South Carolinians an opportunity to succeed. My opportunity agenda focuses on education and on jobs. With that, I believe we'll have the tools necessary to succeed. God bless you. Now, I I don't want this to sound like I am being mean to Tim Scott. Because he was this is his first step onto the big stage. Right. 
You had been a representative. You don't normally have debates that anybody cares about from those positions. And so this is a statewide office. This is something that everybody cares about. So when I say that he's stiff, I don't think that it's a damning thing. And and based on public speaking that I have seen of his more recently, I do think that he is more animated and natural now. However, as we're going to see with Doug Burgum, just because you're a rookie doesn't mean you are a nobody. And I do think that part of what Tim Scott unfortunately sort of lapses into is what I would describe as just kind of wallpaper when he's not active. He can be a little boring and not in a way that makes you seem like he's monotonous. It's just something about him that sort of blends into the background. Here's a clip that I like. This is Tim Scott on uh, being asked about the benefits of his brief incumbency. I don't think that the benefit of incumbency is what it used to be. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling through all 46 counties over the last 18 months. I've spent Monday through Thursday in Washington. I come back home every single weekend. I have a chance to go to my own church, hang out with my grandfather who's 94 years old, take my mom to lunch because these are the reasons why I serve. I look at my nephew and I say to myself, I can prepare a future for him. That's why we came up with the opportunity agenda. It's an, opportunity, it's an agenda that focuses on education, it focuses on skills in the workplace, and it also focuses on allowing people to earn while they learn. The fact of the matter is that the people that like Washington are very, very few. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for relatives, I'm not sure that we'd be popular at all. So the truth of the matter is incumbency has some major negatives. I look forward to not running on the fact that I'm in office, but running on the fact that I love South Carolina, that I've benefited from being a South Carolinian, from growing up here. I've had the chance, I've had the privilege of seeing people rally around me when I was not doing well in school and standing strong with me and forcing me to look in the mirror and to take responsibility. That has been one of the privileges of being a South Carolinian. So I'm running because there's an opportunity for me to continue to serve from my days on county council, through the state house, being elected twice to Congress, and now having an opportunity to ask you for your vote to the United States Senate. Something that you're going to pick up, this is something that candidates without children do all the time, is they will rush to mention how much they love whatever the child surrogate in their life is. So Tim Scott doesn't have a kid. He's going to talk about his nephew. Kamala Harris does this a lot. It's just a thing that candidates without children do. I, I don't know why this is one of those. Maybe it'll change in, in, in politics going forward, but candidates that don't have kids are judged differently. Just something to point out that you pick up when you watch a lot of debates. Obviously, Tim Scott is going to downplay his incumbency. Incumbency? Oh, geez. The fact that I I didn't even notice that I had Senator in front of my name. In fact, I think people hate D.C., and that's something that will work against me. Oh, curse this incumbency. It's good. It's a nice line. And I do think that Tim Scott is at his most likable when he's talking about himself. 
Something you can't see is the fact that he has good eye contact, but again, a bit low energy. Here is Tim Scott, something that, that, you know, people love. They love their own representative. They hate where they go to work. What Tim Scott would do to fix Washington. Washington is broken. The fact of the matter is what we do is work for you, the people. At the end of the day, it's not about Republicans. It's not about Democrats. It's not about independents. It's about putting Americans first. We can see the brokenness of Washington when we look at a $17.6 trillion debt annual deficits of over $700 billion. And in that environment, we come up with something that will not work, Obamacare. We come up with new regulations like Dodd-Frank that only create more oppression on those folks who would create jobs. But instead, they're paying the highest corporate tax rate in all of the world. Washington is broken. What I offer is common sense from South Carolina. Common sense starts with personal accountability to the voters here at home. That's one of the reasons why every weekend I come home to spend time talking to voters, listening to voters. I did a listening tour so that I could understand the issues that impact folks today. I went through and did many jobs. I went on a jobs tour. I, I rode public buses. I worked at a Mo's. I also waited tables. I took the time so that I could understand and appreciate what people are going through today so that I could take their ideas. My best ideas aren't mine. I'm a conduit for the ideas of South Carolinians to find its way to Washington, D.C. so that we can fix a broken system. Okay, I think this is a terrible answer and it shows some of the real flaws, at least at this stage in his career, of Scott's speaking style. He's stuttery, he stop and start, and at his worst, he reminds me of Will Forte's classic Saturday Night Live character, Tim Calhoun. I am Tim Calhoun, and I am running for the office of President of America. And here's why I think you should vote for me. I, Tim Calhoun, am dependable, forthright, smells good, has own fax machine, beekeeper. There's an important call at three in the morning. Who do you want answering the phone? Some snobby jerk with an Ivy League education? Or a great school educated crystal meth enthusiast who literally cannot wait to push the button? candidate of change, although my underwear might disagree with that statement. God, I love Tim Calhoun. On to foreign affairs. What we've seen and what we need to see from America is America first. We should involve ourselves in the world 
as long as it includes our national interests. The fact of the matter is when you look around the world, when America, the only superpower left on earth, withdraws itself completely from the world, we see absolute volatility and chaos. Whether it's Putin and Ukraine, whether it's China and Japan wrestling over land, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's Iran's push towards a nuclear weapon, we should stand strong and use our influence to help the world find order and structure. We do that by looking at our allies first. I, I always start with Israel because I believe that Psalms 122.6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and those who do will prosper. I believe it's very important that our allies understand that we are with them and that our enemies fear us. We should not spend money that we do not have buying influence that we're not obviously doing very well and doing things that are inconsistent with our best interests. If we are going to be successful and effective at helping the world progress, we are going to have to start by focusing on first, what is our national interest? How do we impact the world for our own best interest? Number two, how do we recognize and protect our allies who've come to the table with us? And number three, how do we make sure that our enemies respect us, if not fear us? If we don't do those three things, our involvement in the world will only lead to more chaos. And frankly, what we've seen so far is leading from behind. Red lines that don't Thank count. You, Thank you. So let me just say something in general about debates. I tend to find foreign affairs questions not worthless because obviously, especially if you're in the Senate, you are going to be relied upon to make big decisions in terms of what the United States will and will not do on the international stage. It's just that, especially for where Tim Scott is in his career or where I, any of the other women on stage would be in their career, should they have beaten Tim Scott? Spoiler alert, it doesn't happen. You don't really get a lot to, to do, right? You're going to be pulled along. You are at the end of the dragon's tail. And so you're going to go where a lot of other interests take you. So these foreign affairs questions tend to be boilerplate anyway. And this one was no exception. That being said, Tim Scott in 2014, if you can hear me, never get cut off by the moderator. And I mean, never get cut off by the moderator. It is something that I believe makes you seem weak. Finish your sentence. Do it as quickly as possible. Don't overstay your welcome. Don't be Donald Trump in the first 2020 debate and talk for another 15 minutes until everybody starts yelling at you. But never just immediately cut off like you are, are, are being controlled by a laser or something like that. Just finish your sentence as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you look weak. Here's Scott on the economy. I'll tell you that our economy needs two things for it to grow and to prosper. We need certainty in the workplace and we need predictability. Business owners and employers will hire people when those two things are there. They can actually deal with bad policy. They prefer not to, but they can. I was a, an employer. I was the CEO of my own company for about 13 years. And I will tell you that if I had certainty and predictability, I hired more people, invested in more equipment, and brought back an economy. What the government can do, which is an, which is an inter interesting point, what the government can do is a couple things. Number one, look at taxes and the regula regulations. We have the highest corporate tax rate 
in the world. We have seen Burger King and other companies looking to move their businesses out of our country so they can avoid the highest tax rate in the world. Regulations, Dodd-Frank, Obamacare, so many others actually add pressure that reduces the number of employees that can be hired, the amount of equipment that can be purchased. If we want to see a robust economy, we have to deal with certainty and predictability. We have to reduce taxes to make ourselves competitive. If you think about the fact that the corporate tax rate that we have is about 10 points higher than the rest of the world, I would also say that my opportunity agenda focuses on education, on skills in the workplace, providing people who want to go straight into the workforce the skills to do so. Follow South Carolina, we've done it really well. From Boeing to Michelin to BMW, South Carolina is a great place to do business because our regulations Thank and our taxes Thank are you. right. More of a bread and butter answer for him. But that being said, I couldn't help but get the sense that Tim Scott was getting worse as time went on in this debate. And that's not fantastic. Guys, as we're going to get into in, in a second, this has been his toughest debate test because he was the least well-known. And if that's the case, and you've only had to do one of them every six years, then there's not really a lot of experience under his belt. And if he's fading then, he might fade on stage next week. Now let's get into a stickier situation. Let's see how Scott navigates this. This is Tim talking about both abortion and equal pay between the genders. And I will remind you that he is the only man on stage with two women. Senator Scott. I'm certainly pro-life, number one. And number two, I would tell you that Hobby Lobby was, in fact, an issue of religious liberty, which I support with the decision by the Supreme Court. I will tell you that I had the opportunity to bring Carly Fiorina, a young lady who went from being a secretary at Healer Packet to becoming the CEO of HP. I'll tell you what she has taught me about the issue of equal pay. The fact of the matter is we all know that since 1962 or 1963, it's been illegal to discriminate, but it hasn't stopped it. And her research has led to a very important conclusion, that the seniority system as we know it today actually benefits men and discriminates to some extent against women. And let me explain. The fact of the matter is when a woman decides to leave the workforce to have a family, what ultimately happens is when she comes back into the workforce, because of the seniority system, because of the longevity of the people there, they get paid more. So no matter how hard she works, no matter how well she performs, the fact of the matter is that she does not catch up from where she was. So if we eliminated the seniority system and went to a meritocracy where we actually decided to pay people based on how well they did their job, that women would fare much better in the workforce. This is one of the silver bullets that Carly Fiorina helped me understand and appreciate. So I look forward to focusing much of our time in the future on addressing some of the challenges that we face. And I am very thankful Thank that you. she was willing to come to South Carolina. <laughs> Thank you. I've got, like I've got two hands up. We'll start with Ms. Boss. Thank you. So uh, as a woman, um, I, I'm very glad that Senator Scott has finally decided to investigate the issues that women deal with. But I will be very honest in terms of saying that it is not just the fact that women go out to raise their children. That 
kind of equal pay discrimination happens, I am the breadwinner for my family. I never stayed at home with my children. That is something that my husband did for our family. And I was discriminated against job after job after job. It meant moving positions to increase my salary. So do not go with the wife, old wives tale, if you will, or old husband's tale, perhaps, that it is because women have to leave their jobs to have families. That is bularkey. Ms. Dickerson, uh, 30 seconds for I, I really like to con con concur with what she said, because I, today it just disturbs me when I see a woman who is, who is having a baby, expecting an expecting mother, who works up almost to the day she had the baby, and right after she had the baby, she is back on the job within a matter of a few days. So for someone to use the excuse that women have to leave the workforce, well, we do more work while we are there than the average man because we are always there almost 24-7. We spend more time on our jobs, and so I will have a serious problem when they say that we leave the workforce and we don't put in the time, we do. Thank you. Pretty sneaky. I like this one. He gives a little bit of a lip service to the fact, well, obviously I'm pro-life, but let me talk, ladies, about the fact that you don't get a fair shake at the office. The fact that you are not allowed your position and your trajectory in your career because of the, the seniority system, I would like to change that. Tim Scott, feminist ally. And I learned it from my best friend and political superstar in the making, Carly Fiorina. Well, I mean, he doesn't know that. It's 2014. So she's two years away from being the doomed vice presidential pick of Ted Cruz and singing creepily to his daughters on stage. And I will point this out. Tim Scott got both of his candidates, his, his opposing candidates, to talk about what he was talking about. As we heard in the, in, at the end of this clip. That's good. That's impressive. If you are controlling the dialogue, if you are controlling the conversation, you are winning the debate. It's something that I think viewers may or may not notice. But their brain's dead. Tim Scott beat Joyce Dickerson in that election, 61% to 37%. That was in 2014. And let me tell you this, I had a hard time finding other debates of Scott because, you know, this is not really a seat that's in contention. In fact, he's won his next two elections by the exact same margin that he won this one. I mean, give or take like a point. He beat Democrat Thomas Dixon by a similar margin in 2016. And in 2022, he beat Crystal Matthews by one point more. But Matthews is a bit of a colorful candidate. And I'll give you a little bonus here. There were calls from Democrats for Matthews to stop campaigning during the 2022 election because she was featured in a Project Veritas video where she said, quote, my district is slightly Republican and it's heavily white. I'm no stranger to white people. I'm from a mostly white town. And let me tell you one thing. You ought to know who you're dealing with. Like you got to treat them like S word. I mean, that's the only way they'll respect you. 
I keep them right here, under my thumbs. That's where I keep it. You have to. Otherwise, they get out of control, like kids. And she also apparently liked the following tweet. So I was about to head out of the office here on a Friday afternoon, but before I did, I noticed a U.S. Senate candidate here in South Carolina has posted something interesting to her social media. Let's take a look here. This is U.S. Senate candidate Crystal Matthews, and if you notice on that top tweet that she's liked, she wants her something something so good that her stomach caves in like a Capri Sun. The words that were unsaid in the video and I will try to keep this as family friendly as possible. The second word was sucked. The first word was you know Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets hotter than uh, something that rhymes with hoochie scoochie, right? <laughs> That's a colorful tweet. Her stomach collapses like a Capri Sun. It's pretty nice. After the break, we make our way to Burgum Country, North Dakota. A star is born on the Great Plains right after this. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go right now. Guys, I can feel it. Every four years on the political lunar calendar, things get spicy. You know it. I know it. And I have felt the power returning to me. So many people, names that, that have come and gone, they know that this is the season. The season to get on the $3 level. That is three bucks each and every week. And you're like, man, you want to know one? That's expensive. That's 12 bucks a month. And you're right. It is 12 bucks a month. And I appreciate each and every one of you that carved that out of your budget especially in these times, to support independent media. It does mean the world to me. But I will tell you that you are getting your money's worth because news travels fast this time of year. And if you want to make sure that you always have a little bit of it in your life, well, then you need to get on there. Again, we don't even have time to talk about the Hunter Biden special counsel. The only time that I've talked about the Hunter Biden special counsel was on our Monday show this week. It's just where it fit in the calendar because I'd otherwise talk about it on Wednesday. I was going to talk about it on Wednesday and then the Trump indictment happened. This is not weird during this period of time. This is the norm. And if you would like to make sure you don't miss a beat, you gotta head on over there right now. Take politics seriously. Three bucks. It's a $3 level. Three bucks a week. Price of a cup of coffee. If that would be worth it to you, to buy me one cup of coffee each week so I can give you two bonus episodes, well, then head on over there right now. But first, your update. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, and President Joe Biden is taking time to mark its achievements. And in the midst is the Democratic senator from West Virginia 
who may or may not be running, but also might be running against Joe Biden. Joe Manchin, of course, if you remember last year, was heavily involved in the Inflation Reduction Act, carved out plenty of stuff for West Virginia, and so far, Manchin has voiced mostly positive sentiments about it, aside from some complaints about how it was implemented. This overall positive stance from the Democrats highlights their support of the law, especially as they approach challenging elections where they have to defend seats in key states like West Virginia, Montana, and Ohio. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer remarked positively on the law's impact in West Virginia. You know, hint, hint, Joe, you know, we gave you all this money. You want to run against us? political landscape in the run-up to the 2024 campaign is becoming clear as focus shifts to the Democrats' three economic proposals, the IRA, a significant infrastructure spending initiative, and a microchip manufacturing law. While these were not fully evaluated during the 2022 midterms, their implications will be more evident by next year. The Inflation Reduction Bill, co-authored by Manchin and Schumer, has enabled Democrats to highlight the differences with Republicans who unanimously rejected it. Largely because, even as Joe Biden said, it's kind of more of an environmental bill. Despite a few reservations from Manchin on some of those clean energy components, the IRA has seen stronger support from Democrats than previous legislations, such as Obamacare. Notably, Sherrod Brown of Ohio has praised the law for its initiatives on lowering drug prices and job creation. While Democrats in both the House and the Senate promoted the law and criticized Republicans opposition. The IRA is fairly popular, and despite the fact that the bill did nothing to reduce inflation, like it said, inflation has cooled, so they could have their cake and eat it too. A federal appeals court has ruled that the widely used abortion pill Mephistoprone can remain available, but with imposed restrictions. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit currently is on hold pending a Supreme Court review, ensuring that for now, the pill's accessibility remains the same. This case is the most significant legal challenge on abortion since the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade the previous year. The three-judge panel concluded in a 2-1 vote that Mephistoprone and its generic version could remain on the market. Still, they unanimously decided that the FDA's post-2016 adjustments to increase access to the drug were improperly enacted. The ruling is seen as a partial win for the Biden administration, but one that could favor anti-abortion groups going forward. The Justice Department has expressed its disagreement with the decision and intends to appeal to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court watchers do not expect that they would ban Mephistoprone, but, you know... Who knows? And finally, on a serious note, over a week after Hawaii's devastating wildfires, over a thousand individuals remain unaccounted for in the aftermath. The catastrophic fire, which obliterated much of the historic Lahaina town of Maui, is emerging as one of the deadliest wildfires in U.S. contemporary history. Official figures at the point that I am recording this in the middle of the week are at 106 deaths, with Hawaii's Governor Josh Green foreseeing that that count could rise tragically by the time that you listen to this on Friday morning. 
expert search teams from uh, past major disaster recoveries, including the 9-11 aftermath and the campfire in California, have converged on Maui to assist in the painstaking search. Thus far, searchers have covered 25% of Lahaina, with many harrowing tales expected as communication does get restored. The number of those missing has dropped from 2,000 to 1,300 at the time that we are recording. The Lahaina fire's death toll has already surpassed the 2018 campfire in California, which had 85 confirmed deaths. It has also resulted in the destruction of over 2,200 structures in Lahaina. Uh, Guys, I know that this is a Patreon plug. And look, uh, uh, please spend your money wisely. Um, but also we recorded, we're not wrong earlier this week, uh, Jen Briney, who uh, lived for several years in Hawaii, uh, pointed out that the best way to help if you feel as many of us do a desire to monetarily chip in to those locals, go ahead and donate directly to organizations on the Island, uh, specifically, the Maui Food Bank is what Jen recommended. So please go ahead and do that. And we've already done our plugs for the Patreon. So I think it would be in good taste if we just left saying that is what it is. But also, if you are feeling for our uh, our, our fellow Americans out in Maui, then uh, go ahead and kick some money over there to the Maui Food Bank. Let's get back to the show. Doug Burgum is an entrepreneur who sold his company to Microsoft. He ran for governor without permission in 2016 in the heavily Republican state of North Dakota and had to contend with the GOP-endorsed Wayne Stedgem. This was their only primary debate. Let me point out some of the visuals here. The two candidates are sitting down. They are not standing up. The moderator is between them. And Doug has a very intense smile and doesn't quite know where to go with his eyes. Let's get to his opening statement. I grew up in Arthur, North Dakota, working at the grain elevator and on our farm. I learned the life lessons of hard work, self-reliance, and the importance of building trust in every relationship. When something was broken, we fixed it, or we asked a neighbor for help. We didn't run to the government. During high school, my dad died, and I learned more valuable life lessons as I watched my mom re-enter the workforce as a single mother with three kids. After NDSU and Stanford, I discovered the power of personal computers, and I literally bet the farm to provide the seed capital for Great Plains. We grew from 10 people to 2,000 with team members coming from 220 towns across North Dakota. We built a world-class company with Class A and Class B kids. My experience matters because North Dakota is at a crossroads. Our economy is changing. We've spent too much and our tax revenues have plummeted. It matters because technology is reshaping every industry, including energy and agriculture, and we need a leader who understands where the world is going. These times demand a conservative business leader in the governor's office, and it would be my honor to serve the citizens of North Dakota. Okay, Wayne Stengem, one minute opening statement. Mm. That sounds familiar. Here is Doug Burgum's debut commercial for president released two months ago.
My dad died when I was 14. Freshman year of high school, they pulled me off our basketball team bus and told me the news. I grew up in a tiny town in North Dakota. Woke was what you did at 5 a.m. to start the day. A place where neighbors rally around you. My mom was our rock, our hero. I started a shoeshine business, worked at the grain elevator, and has a chimney sweep. Paid my way through college, then earned an MBA from Stanford. I ignored those who said North Dakota was too small, too cold, and too remote to build a world-class software company. So I literally bet the farm to help build a tiny startup into a billion-dollar company with customers in 132 countries. A kid from small-town North Dakota. That's America. Today, America's facing new challenges, and how we respond will define our future. We need new leadership for our changing economy. That's pretty crazy, huh? That he used, like, almost the exact same verbiage on this. There hasn't been a rewrite on this in eight years. Couldn't clean it up, punch it up a little bit. Then again, we, and by we, I mean myself and you, if you are hearing my voice right now, might be the only psychopaths on the planet to know that Doug Burgum's campaign video for president is almost line for line his opening statement in the North Dakota Republican primary debate. So I guess the joke's on us. Here's Burgum on state economics. Well, I would say it's hard for me to imagine that we plan to only eight months into a biennium to be cutting essential services. And, and while we can't change what's done, uh, and we do have plummeting uh, revenues and our spending at $6 billion, our revenues at $4.9, uh, there's lots of cutting that has, has been done, a lot of cutting that has to be done. I think the thing that we, we need to really focus on going forward is getting a process that sets us up for success. And part of that process is going to be improving our forecasting system, improving our budgeting system, moving to a zero-based budgeting approach, and doing some risk management. Because we, we as, a, as citizens, we all participate in the tremendous ownership North Dakota has in the oil industry, and we weren't hedging our revenues. That's something we do at a grain elevator every night. So I think we've got lots of ideas where we can save money coming from the people on the front lines, whether it's a school teacher, whether it's a, a, someone driving a snowplow or the legislators themselves. Everyone's got ideas on where we can cut. We're gonna end up with a balanced budget, uh, but let's put in some new procedures and processes to allow us to be more successful going forward. Okay, Wayne Stengem, response. I gotta say that I actually kinda dig Burgum's CEO vibes. Normally, business people as politicians tend to come off as either arrogant or slimy. But Bergam has a good way of knowing the facts and listing the facts to a point where you almost trust him more. He just seems more confidently uh, grasping the issues. You can tell that he's comfortable. And... Here is uh, him and Stidham going back and forth on what their budget would look like. A quick follow-up to that, then, then Wayne Stidham, quickly, you and then Doug Burgum. If, if elected governor, what would your budget look like? Well, the budget will be balanced because the Constitution right. requires it, of course, and that's what good business management requires. But there are going to be cuts. There's no question about that because we, don't, we won't have enough 
revenue. And, and of course, we won't find out for certain about that until the new revenue forecast comes out sometime this summer. But it looks like we're going to have to find some uh, additional cuts that we can make. The, the first step was the process that the governor went through as he directed the agencies to cut 10% from their last, uh, uh, last budget allocations. That's first step. But of course, we're also going to make clear that we're going to continue to fund elementary and secondary education, public safety, the things I talked about at the level that, uh, that we've been funding them now. But we need to go back and we're going to have to look at those agencies that received additional funding because of the oil boom in North Dakota and see if there's further justification to continue that kind of funding. So we'll be looking at all of those things. Very few things, except what I mentioned, will be off the table. But it's going to be, I, I always say, it's not uh, complicated that you balance a budget. It's, it's not easy, but uh, it's not all that complicated because you just have to go through the process and make sure that your expenditures equal your revenue ex expectation. Okay, final word on this, Doug Burgum, then we're going to move on. Well, it, it is, uh, it, it's not complicated to have a balanced budget, but what, is, what the real opportunity for us as a state is the opportunity for innovation. Uh, one thing I've learned in managing uh, really large at-scale organizations and large-scale budgets and what I've learned in, in growing uh, tech companies and working at places like Microsoft is that the, when there's an opportunity, when there's constraints placed on a system like a fiscal constraint, that creates the opportunity for collaboration and for innovation and the chance to do things new and differently. And, and we can't just cut our way to success. We have to figure out a way to provide better services, do more with less, and we have an opportunity to do that across education, across healthcare, across every aspect of government. And I'm excited about the opportunity ahead of us because I know that these constraints will cause us to think new, about new and different approaches and in the end we'll be a stronger and better state because of it. Now this, this is a really good business guy answer. Mostly because what people think of when you say, I'm going to run the government like a business, is that you are going to cut more. Now, people who are well off in that state or country really like the idea of a guy who's going to cut more because they believe on some level that it will lead to less taxes. But the pitch that Burgum's making is a little more nuanced. He is saying that the gov government can and should look at this particular budget squeeze as an opportunity, an opportunity to do more with less. It's not just the government need to make cuts. It's that he can get more out of this because we've identified the inefficient areas and the full scale transformation that he will put into place is going to maximize the money that goes in there in the future. And he's excited. Bergam's thrilled. Stidham looks like he's looking for a load bearing beam with a noose. Go with the man who's thrilled to jump in and find the monkey. Here's Bergamot Oil. I'd say one of the things that we want to do to set our state employees up for success and make sure that the companies that are taking risk and the energy companies that are coming to North Dakota, they're choosing to put their capital here, they're choosing to bring their, their team members, employees, and their management here, uh, it is a balance. But one of the things that the decisions around that big of an industry requires good data. 
And one way that we can help our state employees is making sure that we give them the very best data. And, and there are a myriad new approaches for automatically collecting data, whether it's oil production itself or managing pipeline spills, uh, whether it's you know, using the new technology of having uh, you know, drones to be able to fly over pipelines and look for spills. We have all kinds of ways to automate that system and we can actually have better results at lower costs with the use of technology, and it'll be better for the companies that are coming to North Dakota, and it'll allow our state employees to do do a great job in managing that important industry. Okay, last word, Wayne okay. Stengem, then we'll- Drones, data, automation. We have so many Silicon Valley buzzwords. Doug Burgum's here to take a distressed asset in North Dakota and 10 exit, bro. Let's go from zero to one. Open the kimono. This is actually fascinating here coming up. Bergam on Obamacare. Remember, this is 2016 in the waning days of Republicans believing that they were going to overturn it. Obamacare as a piece of legislation, it's, it's horrible for North Dakota. It's horrible for rural health care. I've seen its effect. I know what it, it does. It, it kills jobs. It raises cost. It doesn't, know, it doesn't make care either more affordable or make care better. It's really about insurance. And there's aspects of, of the Obamacare that are important in terms of like protecting people with pre-existing liability or pre-existing conditions. Uh, but I believe that we can create with approaches if we free ourselves from a federal program of 12,000 pages of regulation, we can, we can create a system here that will work better for our citizens and better for our geography and better for our people. Let me point this out because this is one of those subtleties where you can separate good debaters from very good debaters or, or, or bad debaters from good debaters. Are you telling a story? Is your character telling a story? So we pointed out before that Bergam as business guy means I'm going to get your relationship with, I'm going to make your relationship with the government better. The government's going to give you more because you have a business guy in there. That's very important. Because if you just come out as the guy who cuts everything, then it makes you seem even worse when you talk about entitlement programs like Obamacare. Now, let's get into this back and forth that happened right afterward. It's based on the outgoing governor's decision to sign a brief presented to the Supreme Court defending Obamacare. Stedgem says that he had to do it because 2% of 2% of North Dakotans needed a tax credit that went along with it. And then Stedgem takes a little jab at Bergham for being a bit faker now that he's a politician. Listen to how Bergham responds. Insurance with a promise to yank it away from them. It's the wrong thing. And I think too, Doug, that the original authentic Doug Burgum would have told me, you sign on to that, Wayne, because it's the right thing. Okay, final word on this, Doug Burgum, then we'll move on. Well, Wayne, I've heard, I've heard your uh, defense of why you defended Obamacare uh, in, the, in the 2% of North Dakotans, the 16,000, and, and it gets my reaction that the authentic Doug Burgum is, knowing how bad this is for the economy, knowing how a $3.2 trillion healthcare economy in the U.S. cannot be regulated centrally, that I feel that there was ways that we could have managed those 2% of North Dakotans differently through legislative action, others to support them. This wasn't the only way to help them get the, the economic value of that, of that tax credit at a federal level. But what I really more concerned is that, that if that logic applies, then 
then we as Republicans, or you applying that logic, would be supporting every large-scale tax and spend redistribution scheme that helped 2% of North Dakotans, because we know socialism doesn't work and socialized medicine doesn't work. And, and it's not, it's like I said, not good for North Dakotans, not good for America. Now look, North Dakota moves at a bit of a slower pace than let's say the big city of Austin, Texas, or Oakland, California, or Miami, Florida, okay? So I'm trying to adjust for, for local speed when I say that that right there, what you just heard, is a kick in the head from the rookie to the pro. Bergam says that, oh, don't you worry, bro. I am authentic. And the guy I'm looking at, well, he's not only for Obamacare. If he falls for that, then he's for Every socialist scheme that the D.C. Democrats can cook up. Woo! Brutal. And then we move on to the next thing that Doug Bergen was being attacked on. Angel investing? And I'm going to let both of you talk about this and respond to criticism. Doug Bergen, you go first this time. Well, the first thing I would just say is I, I stand by my record of investing in North Dakota. I have a lifetime investing in North Dakota. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure I've done you know, as much or more investing in job creation in North Dakota in my lifetime than anybody who's ever run for this office. And so I, I stand by that wholeheartedly. And the second thing is, which I think it ought to send a chill up the spine of any law-abiding citizen in North Dakota to know that we have a candidate for governor who's willing to use political theater to try to advance a political agenda around uh, around a, a program which was passed by Republicans, supported by Republicans, voted expanded by Republicans, and that every single person who's using the angel tax credit in North Dakota is doing it in a way as it was intended and following the law, whether it was reporting or investing, everybody's following the law. And so if, if the legislature wants to change this rule, they can do it, uh, but they shouldn't, be, they shouldn't be singling out investors uh, and making comments about their law-abiding activity uh, as a way to gain a political advantage. Okay, Wayne Stenger, response. Well, I, I think that the original intent of the angel fund was to encourage people to take this tax credit so they could make investments and I believe the legislature intended and certainly will indicate that they do intend that those, fun, those funds be used for investments in businesses here in North Dakota. And so the question is going to be asked, what have you done with the tax credits that you got to employ people and create businesses here in North Dakota? Not the 13 of the 17 that you got credits for that were uh, for businesses outside of the state of North Dakota. And I really find it a little disingenuous that you want to defend so uh, critically and zealously your tax credit when just on the last question, you wanted to take away the tax credit from the citizens who bought insurance. And those are the poor people of North Dakota. Doug Bergham, response. Well, I, this is uh, maybe this is an example of where, you know, paying a lifetime in politics versus lifetime in business really becomes a clear differential point because at the state legislature has a program called the Seed Capital Tax Program, which is explicitly designed for people that want to invest in North Dakota. The Angel Tax Credit Program, created by the legislature and followed legally by everybody that approved it, was about attracting capital to North Dakota. That's what that program was for, because North Dakota was 47th in, in, the, in the country in terms of having capital to fund startups. Because you talk about wanting to diversify the economy. When we want to diversify the economy, we need capital to help us do that, to do that. And that's what that program was intended. 
And, and then it's also you're suggesting that I got tax credits for these things. The firm, Arthur Ventures, which I co-founded with my nephew, receives zero tax credits. Those tax credits go to our investors, and I wouldn't have any way of knowing if any of those investors took them because we don't have their tax returns per law the way it should work. So the claims that have made have been false and the statements again have been chilling because again, are, are we against people investing capital in our state? Is that the point that you're trying to make? Okay, final word, Wayne okay. Stanley. And no, I wanna make it clear that I support the angel fund, but I think the question is going to come up and the interim committee that was established in 2015 by the legislature wants answers to the question, what are the citizens of North Dakota getting out of that? That's the simple question that people really want to know. What are we getting for it? And they will then make a decision of whether it's worth it or not. And I certainly don't want to be critical for and accuse anyone of not following the law. I clearly understand that that's not an issue, and I hope you understand that I've not said that. But I do want to know what the answer to the question is. What are we getting out of this? Because, because the question of continuing the angel fund will be coming up. It will be front and center next session. And I think that we need to have answers to those questions because we don't have enough money to continue those kinds of expensive programs when there are other programs that simply are likely to be much more of a priority. Now, I don't know what the hell this question was about, but I think it makes it better because I can just judge their body language and the way that they talk to each other. Bergam takes the accusation and makes Stedgem look like he has no idea what he's talking about. Stedgem asked two questions in that clip. The first was, where did the money go, Doug? And it ends with, so wait, what do we get for this money anyway? The first one is a personal attack that makes Bergam look like a crook. Good for Stedgem. The other is a question that makes the political novice Burgum look like the expert. Bad for career politician Stedgem. Doug Burgum still has weird facial expressions. But by and large, he delivered that ass whipping clean and confident. And he won the governorship of North Dakota because of it, despite the fact that he didn't have the Republican Party's endorsement. That being said, this is kind of like watching Division Three football. Sure, these players look good against other teams in their league, but if you put them on the field with Georgia or Alabama, they're probably going to get blown out. Probably. Bergham, to me, feels like kind of a more competent Andrew Yang, but... He doesn't have the issues, and he certainly hasn't broken through to the national consciousness. This is a vibes election. Can he channel his technocratic skill into something that people care about? My bet's no, but there's only one way to find out, and that's to watch this debate next week. We have our last debate prep segments. Then. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show was edited by the inimitable Brett Stewart. You can email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter, Justin R. Young for me personally, PX3 tweets for the show. You can follow me live on Twitch, PX3 Live. 
PX3Podcast.com and share this podcast with your friends at FamilyPX3Podcast.com. If you'd like to support us with a one-time donation, it is PayPal.me slash PayJury. My Venmo is Justin-Young-20. Cash app is PX3Cash. P.O. Box. 153184 Austin, Texas 78715 if you'd like to send me anything in the mail. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184 Austin, Texas 78715 Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com That $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule and the $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier, Jason, Edwin, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, Matthew T. Elbasso, John, Craig Potts, MC Radio, Unsafe DB Level, Neemeister, Edwin, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris, Arslanian, Blue Front, and the Lanina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank, got abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Gen, A, L, D, L, D, L, D, really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, you want your name read? On this show, there's only one place to go, unless you're a schmo, you better know. Take politics seriously. Dot com. Oh, it's debate week next week. Oh, it's debate week next week. Oh, hell yeah. We have our final debate preps, including a man. For whom we don't know if he is going to show up. Yes, we are going to recap the legend of the Chungus, Donald Trump, along with Mike Pence. Oh, baby, they got along so well in 2016. Could we see them on the same stage? We find out next week. And also, we're going to watch that live. So if you want a second screen viewing experience where uh, I will be, I think we're going to bring back the smoky back room. We're going to turn on the black and white filter. I'm putting the suit back on. We're bringing out the Toki and Topo. Oh, yeah. We're back on our BS. Till then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.